What if I told you that the way we understand our faith has been formed by the culture that we're living in and its stories and images and metaphors? That is the argument that today's guest, Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor, makes very convincingly on today's episode of the Untangled Faith Podcast. I'm Amy Fritz, and you're listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all that is not good or true, this is the place for you. I've admired Dr. Karen Swallow Pryor for a long time. Last year, I had the fortuitous experience of running into her and being able to have a dinner with her at a home of a friend. And she is exactly in person what I had hoped she was from afar. She is kind, real, and passionate about truth and goodness. Dr. Pryor taught at Liberty University from 1999 through 2020. And if you paid any attention to politics and religion over the last several election cycles, you probably know that the then president of Liberty University, Jerry Falwell Jr., was a huge supporter of Donald Trump. At the same time, Dr. Pryor was an outspoken critic of Trump. Also during this timeline, many brave women came forward talking about their experience of being abused while students at Liberty University and how the institutional response failed them. Liberty University was sued by 12 women in 2021. Here's an excerpt of an article from CNN about the lawsuit. The lawsuit includes claims of sexual assault and accuses the Lynchburg School of creating a hostile environment toward the plaintiffs. I mentioned this to give you some context about Dr. Pryor. The book we're talking about on today's podcast, which was authored by Dr. Pryor, was dedicated to one of the Jane Doe's. Dr. Pryor knows the cost of prizing truth and goodness over comfort and income. Like I tell her in the introduction to our conversation, Karen is our people. We are her people. You have had a journey of your own that I just am really grateful for. We are really glad to have you here. These are your people. Good, good we, to know. We are your people. As I was reading your book, which is so fun, like when I first heard it was coming out, Karen, I sent a message to some publicists saying, I need this book. And they're like, I'm not on that team, but I will message Shelly. <laughs> oh, yeah. And it was your book and Caitlin Chess's book, both coming out around Oh, yeah. Yeah. so happy. Yeah, her book is so good. I got to read it and endorse it. And mm, she said that you're you're working like being in a class with you was the first time she actually thought about publishing mm -hmm. anything. Is that crazy? It is. And here you it's are. So crazy. Yeah. So one of the big arguments of your book, unless I read it completely wrong, is that culture has influenced evangelicals way more than we would like to admit, and that it's not a new thing. So my first question is, does that sound right? And what is your hope for how your book can help people wade through like the way they've been influenced by things they don't even know they've been influenced mm -hmm. by? No, that is a great question. So of course, 
to be human and to live in a human society means to live in a culture and that culture is going to influence us. And so that's not anything that's unique to evangelicals. It's just part of being human. And God designed it that way, obviously, because he put us here on earth and we are living in this world before the new heaven and a new earth. And so this is part of his plan. But with that said, I would say evangelicalism is probably more influenced in some ways by the culture than perhaps other communities or even religious communities because it was always from the beginning sort of a response to culture in many ways. And we can talk about that more. But what I really am setting out to do in this book is to just Again, because as I said, we can't help but be influenced by culture, and that's just what it means to be human. We can help whether or not we are aware of that and we think about it and we look for those influences. That's really all I'm trying to do in this book is what we should always be trying to do. But I'm just narrowing in and focusing on some particularities of evangelical history, which is 300 years old, and our own sort of tendencies or blind spots, at least as I see them. So that's what's going on in the book. Okay, I'm going to jump on what you said. The 300 years old. This is blowing our minds. What would we miss or not understand if we're coming to this conversation thinking that evangelicalism started is a merely American thing and then it started like in the 70s, 1970s? Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's so interesting because I come to this having studied the 18th century in England because of my area of academic expertise in literature. And I set out to do that many years ago and study that period as an evangelical without really even knowing that I was evangelical. I think most of us really don't use that term. We haven't used that term or thought about that term until you know, about 2016, when it starts making headlines, we thought of ourselves as Christians, or we thought of ourselves as by our denomination or our church affiliation. And then those who maybe have been a little bit more aware often think of, because we're American, we think of American evangelicalism. And there was a lot of press and a lot of debate in the 20th century around evangelicalism, especially as Billy Graham came to the fore and Time Magazine did a cover story on evangelicals. So even if we go back, it's often only to the last century in America. But again, and I give this history more in the book, but basically what was called the evangelical revival arose in England in the 1720s, led by the Wesley brothers, John and Charles and George Whitfield, many others, but they were the pioneers. It spread across the ocean to America and and took the form of what we now call the Great Awakenings. That is the beginning of what we call evangelicalism. And it's a direct line, a direct path. So that makes it 300 years old. And I think it helps us to understand that history A lot of people want to reject the term, and I get that's a different conversation, but we (laughs) have to at least acknowledge that this term didn't develop in the 20th century or in 2016 or whatever. It's much older than that. Yes, it has a long history. I wanted to read a quote or like an excerpt that you had put in your book, and this, you're going to recognize it right away from David Foster Wallace from his speech. 
where um, that he'd given this commencement speech in 2005, where he said, there are these two young fish swimming along and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way who nods at them and says, morning boys, how's the water? And the two young fish swim on for a bit. And then eventually one of them looks over at the other and goes, what the hell is water? This sets up the book and this sets up the conversation really well. So I want to ask you personally, when did you realize that you were surrounded by water, the influence of culture? And like, what did that mean for what happened next for your spiritual formation? That's a good question. And of course, I love that quote. It's famous. And it really just explains the way culture works. Again, not just for evangelicals, but for everyone. But when did I discover it? I, again, I think I'll... Oh, goodness. I'm so old and I have such a long history. So the short version of it, I guess, I mean, there are many chapters to it is, you know, I really and anyone who knows a little bit about me may not know this. Those who know a little bit more, maybe know a little more. But I actually was formed very much by what we call the culture wars. So in the late 1980s to the early 1990s, I was young. I was a graduate student. I was newly married. I went to a very conservative, independent church, a very good, healthy church, but very conservative, maybe even almost fundamentalist. And that was the time of the culture wars. And I was because I was in, had grown up in a very secular environment, or I was raised in a Christian home, but we lived in liberal, secular communities in the Northeast, I felt very displaced as a Christian. And so the culture wars came along, and I was very much formed by them and approached culture in that way in my 20s and 30s, and for a long time did. I have an activist spirit. My spiritual gift is prophecy, so it just fits in with my personality and the way I'm made. But I would say, even though I have that posture and that personality, I was always fighting against the Christians who wouldn't read the good literature or see the good films or go to the art museums or just be welcoming to unbelievers and to people who don't think like we do, whether inside or outside of the church. So I always existed in this tension for so long because I was an academic, but I was also a conservative Christian. Yeah. So I would just say this has been my life since I was really a fairly young adult. And now it's not so much that I'm in the culture wars against the culture. I, I want Christians to change the culture. Yes, but we have to change it in a way that we are, we embody and and demonstrate yeah. who Christ is and how he is. And I mean, that was like a really long answer, but it was such a good question that I haven't really thought no, about. No, I get it. I was having a conversation. You say you're really old, but let me tell you, <laughs> when I went to college in, I don't know, late 90s, I had just bought this t-shirt that I was real proud of, Karen. And it said, how can a moral wrong be a civil right? It can't read the Bible. I wore that shirt proudly. And now I think, I don't think I'd wear that shirt today because I don't know what I was hoping to accomplish with that. So I get it. I was very much into that, like who we are was about who we were against and making rules and not a whole lot of nuance, not a whole lot of introspection. So I can relate 
in some ways. And I have seen one thing I really do appreciate about you is that I have seen you grapple with some of that and grapple with some of those changes publicly in some of your writing and saying, I did this and I regret it. Like you, you talk in the book about how there are things we don't know. We don't know. And when we do know, we have a chance. There's a, there is that opportunity then to make a decision about what we do. Either we acknowledge it and we do, we do something. We like say, thank you to the Holy spirit for revealing that. And we ask for him to do that, that work of sanctification, or we just refuse to see it. So I've appreciated that in you. And I think it's such a, this is a big moment for our history as evangelicals. Are we willing to see the things that we didn't want to see now that some of the curtain is being pulled back? So what have you seen with that? Any thoughts on any of those? Rambles? No, I just, I agree so much that we are in this moment. And I, I do want to back up and say we're all works in progress yeah. and we're all mm-hmm. learning. And I think that's one thing. We're all sort of individually works in progress and all learning. And we need to give grace to ourselves, which also means we have to, but we have to have to give grace to others. So yes. when other people are ahead of us or saw something before us, like they shouldn't be shaming us and we shouldn't be shaming other people. We should just be, again, seeking truth and advocating for truth through our very lives as best we can. And then the other thing, and this is what you were alluding to when you talked about the curtain being drawn back. The other thing is not only are we works in progress and we're growing and learning, but also culture does change. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm a writer, obviously, we're talking about my book. (laughs) And so one of the things a writer has to always, or any kind of speaker, or most people in any line of work, we have to think about our audience, right? Mm -hmm. We have to think, who are we talking to? And that changes, the context changes. And so if we're talking, you know, I'll I'll invoke one of my favorites, Flannery O'Connor, who says famously in mystery, you know, she was a a Southern short story writer and novelist in the middle of the 20th century, Catholic and very devout Catholic and conservative in that way. And so she was writing to an audience of, of, people, you know, of of literary readers and artists who were not like her and living in a culture that was resistant to her beliefs. And so she famously said, because her her stories are very odd and shocking and bizarre and violent. And she said, to the hard of hearing, you have to shout. Mm -hmm. And to the blind, you have to draw large startling figures. So she knew her audience and she characterized them as blind and deaf and needing to her to shout. And I think today, as evangelicals, we are living in a culture that is overwhelmed with noise and mm-hmm. pictures and pop-up screens. I'm talking literal and metaphorical. Yeah, yeah. And so what is going to draw them isn't so much the shouting and the large startling pictures, perhaps, but the quietness and the peace. I heard a, a quote the other day that I've been can't stop thinking about it was from a saint in the church i can't remember his name someone listening might know this but he said something like a peaceful inner life like if we have the fruit of the spirit which includes peace he didn't use that part but he just said peace a peaceful inner life will convert a thousand people and he said that in the middle ages and i'm thinking this is what will convert people now is again us displaying the fruit of the spirit including peace yeah um yeah i don't know if i answered your question but that's where i went (laughs) yeah i like where you went so 
as I'm reading through your book, your chapters talk about all of the images, the stories, the metaphors that have formed us, whether we knew it or not. And one of those, I just want you to take us on just a brief history of one of them. And that is the idea of conversion. Can you just, I know this could be the whole conversation, but I think sometimes we, in our culture, in 2023, evangelical Christianity in America, we think this is what it means to decide to follow Jesus. And it's a conversion experience we talk about. Tell us a little bit about the history of that idea of conversion. Yeah. I mean, of course, conversion is a biblical idea. It's necessary. I mean, we must be born again. We must be saved. We must be converted. We must, you know, on the road. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, so, but again, going back to cultural context, the evangelical revival of the 18th century that I mentioned before occurred in a context in which the Reformation was a couple hundred years old, if I'm doing the math correctly. There was a church, an established church of England. And so there was really, there was a state church, which meant unless you were born to some minority religious group that existed, but were very minority in England in the 18th century, if you were born as an English citizen, you were also born as a member of the church. Like you just were Mm -hmm. on the roll and Mm -hmm. you, you were considered a member of the the church, you were an Anglican. And so the idea of having a conversion experience just didn't really exist in the way we understand it today. And so the evangelical revival came about, one one of the things that characterized it, one of the four characteristics that David Bebbington identifies that I talk about in the book, was conversionism, this emphasis Mm -hmm. on being born again, being converted, being saved. That's what defined evangelicalism in the 18th century, the 19th century, the 20th century, and the 21st century. Like, we believe in that experience. And what I talk about in the book, I give that history, but and I believe in that experience. But what I'm trying to draw out is if we don't, if we just assume that is what everyone believes and their emphasis, then where do we put, for example, maybe a high church or Catholic friend who we know loves the Lord, yeah. but they don't have that language or even that experience, is it possible that they also are converted in the way that we would understand it, but just have had a different experience and can't pinpoint the day or the time or the hour? I can't pinpoint it because I was a very small child, but I know that I was saved because I do, I can pinpoint the day of my baptism, which was the public profession of that experience that took place. And so there's so many things that burst wide open when we start thinking about conversion being something that we emphasize in this movement. And we've emphasized it so much that most of us now don't even realize it's it's an emphasis. We just take it for granted. Yeah. Yeah. One thing that stood out to me is that you talked about how in this Victorian age, pastors were pastors because they were appointed and that they would become saved after, you know, like I'm using the, I'm using the term saved. They would become converted later. And it made me think of Mr. Collins, of course, and Pride yeah. and Prejudice. And, you know, I wasn't really impressed with him, but you know what? It wasn't that he became a pastor in this fictional world because he was like so devout. Yeah, was- if, if you read any, you know, 18th and 19th century <laughs> novels, you encounter these young men who, you know, if they're the firstborn, they're in a wealthy family, they're going to inherit the estate and it'll be their job to run the estate. If you're the second born, you go off to Oxford or Cambridge and be trained for the church. 
that's just like what your role is. It doesn't matter whether you had a conversion experience or not. You're a minister. Obviously, I'm speaking in broad stereotypes. That was just a context. I thought that was really interesting. And also, it reassured me of why I wasn't a big fan of Mr. Collins. But (laughs) I don't think Mr. Collins was ever really converted. (laughs) He needs Jesus. He needs Jesus. So one of the chapters that I have a lot of underlines on, I feel is so... Well, of course, like all of these things are relevant right now, but you're talking about sentimentality in evangelicalism. This is like why I had to take a moment. My mom had a Thomas Kincaid picture. You talk a little bit about the story of Kincaid in this chapter. It was a sad, tragic story all around, lots of layers to that. But can you explain what sentimentality is in as you are approaching this? And like, why is this a problem for our Christian witness and spiritual formation? Yeah, this is like a, um, this is a big topic for me that I, because I teach literature and culture, you know, I care about these things. And then, oh yeah, because I'm a Christian, I care about them too. So I had to bring it in. So, so sentimentality in itself is not bad. We all probably went on a vacation or had a special occasion and we have some object that has sentimental value. Maybe it's a grandmother's brooch or something, something that has no monetary value, but we have feelings attached to it because it reminds us of something. And that's wonderful. That's why I have so many things. Like I can't get rid of, I'm not a minimalist. I have many things I have sentimental attachment to. You're a maximalist. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. And sentimentality is just simply an emotional kind of response to something. And our emotions are good. Believe me, I think emotions and empathy, whatever you want to say, they're all good. They are not a sin, (laughs) as some people say. But sentimentality can, when it becomes sentimentalism, like a worldview that it overwhelms everything else, then and becomes out of balance, then it can become bad. And, And so in this chapter on sentimentality, I'm mainly examining not only, but mainly examining how sentimentality manifests in evangelicalism in art. So like the Thomas Kincaid painting that you mentioned, and like the one on the cover of the book, which by the way, the cover of the book is ironic, people. I talk about, not that painting, the one I talk about in there that was similar in style is one I couldn't get the permission from the copyright owner to include in the book, but it still gives a same idea that warm, soft, fuzzy kind of Jesus, especially a white Jesus. We like a white Jesus. If we're white, even though he wasn't, that's a sentimental kind of Jesus. And so I don't want the readers of my book to go into their grandmothers or their mothers or their great aunt's (laughs) home and strip it of its sentimental art or criticize those who have it. But we can, for ourselves, think about what the art that we surround ourselves with, whether it's on our walls or on our car radio or in our churches, what it's teaching us and how it's forming us. If it's yeah. if it's tending, if it's making us feel good just in a warm, fuzzy way, or if it requires some sacrifice, if it has a little hardness or makes us puzzle something out or makes us uncomfortable, that art. It doesn't have to be shocking. That's sort of a postmodern idea. So I'm not saying that. It should be something that reminds us of the human who made it and our human experience, as well as pointing to the good, true, and the beautiful. And things that are soft and warm and fuzzy and cottages filled with light are actually not true. 
right? So yeah. they they might make us feel good, but they aren't really a good representation of what life is like. They certainly aren't a good representation of of Jesus on the cross being sacrificed for us. Now for a quick break. Not long ago, I made a decision that changed my life and my relationships. I started going to counseling, and I'm so glad I did. If you've been considering getting started with counseling, Faithful Counseling makes it so easy to get started. I know you don't like talking on the phone, so it's good news that you can start the process without even picking up the phone to talk to someone. The Untangled Faith Podcast is brought to you by my listeners who support me on Patreon. It is also brought to you by Faithful Counseling. Faithful Counseling is a Christian counseling service with more than 3,000 licensed therapists across all 50 states with access by video or phone sessions or chat or text. There are therapists with expertise in trauma, depression, family conflicts, and more. You can ask for a new counselor at any time, and financial aid is available for those who qualify. Untangled Faith podcast listeners get 10% off their first month from our sponsor, Faithful Counseling. Go to faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Fill out a questionnaire, and you'll be matched with a counselor. That's faithfulcounseling.com untangled. Now back to the show. One thing I'm thinking of that's like Christian art has been rightly criticized and I'm thinking of like Christian films and oh my goodness it's there it's been a struggle <laughs> it's been a struggle and I think some of it is like this really heavy handedness of this message do not let truth just be truth without banging people over the head with this is what I'm saying and this is why I'm saying and this is what you should do with it mm-hmm. but one thing I'm thinking about that's like right now is there's a movie that came out last week the sound of freedom and I just thinking about that. Now, people might not think about that. It's not a Christian film, but I'm thinking about the sentimentality in regard to that. I don't know if you're aware of it very much, but it just came out around the 4th of July. It's based on the story of this former government agent that his name is Tim Ballard, I think. And it's about him going and rescuing children from trafficking in Colombia. Only there's a couple issues with the film. There's some controversy over it. First of all, like they're might not be completely true. The main actor is very QAnon adjacent, as well as the person whose story, life story this is based on. And like the idea of trafficking, really, the big idea of trafficking really isn't about dramatic rescues. And the way we're going to be able to fix it isn't going to be dramatic hero rescues. And it's not really a big, I mean, while there are children that are kidnapped, that absolutely happens. That's not the big issue when it comes to trafficking. And I'm just wondering, as you said, when we, everybody's posting on my Facebook saying, go see this movie. It's so wonderful. It'll change you. And I'm wondering, like you say, you're afraid with sentimentality that it reinforces rather than refines your beliefs. Mm -hmm. Any thoughts on that? Yeah. I mean, so I'm aware of that film. I haven't seen it. So I'm going to make some observations about this type of thing, which may not apply to this film, but it's, you're pointing to a really good and kind of a hard example because it's so hard to be critical of these things that are kind of like doing good work. But, but this is what I would say about that. We do 
again, part of it is being human. We do like our romances. And when I say, you know, I'm, I'm talking about a capital R romance, are not just the things that we see in Hallmark movies, which if you watch them, that's another kind and that fits in the category. But we like our white knights in shining armor yeah. and we like our cowboys and the villains. And we like our heroes and our the villains. I mean, even Star Wars is, again, this isn't just evangelical. Even Star Wars yeah. is essentially a romance with the white suited guys and then Darth Vader. And I think there's a spoiler there, but, uh, you know. Whatever. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah like, oh. <laughs> um, you know, so there are many forms of, of romance, as I'm speaking of it. And again, I love stories, so I'm not dismissing the power of those stories, but we have to recognize them for what they are. We have to yeah. recognize that they're myths, they're legends, they're romances. They aren't realistic because as you just pointed out, and I'm not an expert in this, but I've read enough and you're suggesting it here, the real scene and the real ground for trafficking is much more mundane yeah. and much more ordinary and not writ so large as what we see in these kinds of films and everyone wants to rescue the child which we should out of this situation you know and the hero who does that 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 is wonderful but it's easier to do that and talk about that than it is to consider the patterns of our consumption that are contributing to like porn hub and the kind of pornography that you know is is in held in, in people's phones every day or supporting that kind of thing. I mean, there are just so many or, or just the sexualization of children that in, in everyday occurrences all around us, whether it's little uh, beauty pageants or just advertising. I mean, these are all things that contribute to. It's not as interesting of a movie. I don't know. People are just not as excited about going to see a movie about how can we provide help an economy that is so struggling and is so corrupt wherever it is so that these women and children do are not susceptible. How can we help set them up with jobs so that they can like that? That's how the real not sexy work is. Right. Right. And it's long and it takes a long investment, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't make for good movie. Mm, exactly. What you said also about sentimentality, and I think you were quoting somebody, is that sometimes that emotion that we get after it keeps us from actually doing the thing. We feel like we've done something. We feel Mm -hmm. like I was moved and then nothing happens. You just feel moved and that makes you think, and then nothing happens. Yeah. I mean, again, that's a tricky line. I mean, because Maybe being moved is and and being moved is the first step, but the problem yeah. becomes when that's the last step too. And so I think the quote you're alluding to is the one is Milan Kundera's definition of kitsch, which is just like that's the difference between good art that moves us and bad art that moves us is that that kitsch draws us back to ourselves. Oh, look at me, how wonderful it is to be moved. It drew a tear out of me. Don't I feel better about myself because I'm crying at this emotional scene or I feel bad about this trafficking situation. But if it ends there, then it's kitsch. It's sentimentality. Yeah. As you're saying this, it's not really related, but I just am so grateful. I have interviewed three people where this stands out to me. You, Caitlin Chess, and Dr. McKnight, 
And it probably is not a coincidence that all of you guys are in, in some form of higher education, whether working on your PhD or you have taught in academia, you always share your sources. And like some people think that's such a big deal of like why that, uh, that it's distracting. I don't find it. I think, oh my goodness, more information for me to run down. Somebody else I can read. Like I love the number of note pages of notes at the ends of people's books where I'm like, <laughs> Yay, they didn't make it up. <laughs> They're giving credit to somebody for these this learning. So I know it's not related, although you did talk a little bit about plagiarism and ghostwriting later on in the book. But I just love that because we can be like, okay, I want to learn more about this. And here's a whole notes section and notes, footnotes, all the notes that we can run down. So thank you. Oh, you're thank welcome. You. Thank you for appreciating that. Yeah. There was another like underlined in several different colors, starred in my book that I think is really important to the conversation right now. And it was in your book in the chapter, The Puritan Work Ethic, Paradise Lost, and the Price of Progress. And it's on page 107. There are times when a message should be rightly understood apart from the messenger, the bottom of the page, 107. But sometimes the agenda and the message cannot be separated from that of the messenger. I would love for you to talk about that a little bit more. How do we wrestle with this in our culture when we have seen so many messengers turn out to be bad dudes? Wow. I I just have to say, I, I wish I could answer this question for myself satisfactorily. <laughs> it's yeah. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's a hard question, but again, it, it, the problem is, is that we aren't even always answering it or yeah. even we're not, we're not even asking it. Yeah. So it's important to wrestle with the idea that some of this water that we're swimming in was, was polluted or impacted or more water was poured into it by some people that were really questionable. Yeah. No, it's, this really is the million, the, I don't even know how much money this $265,000 question or whatever, really. I, this, this is maybe the central question of the book. Like when and how do we do that? I'll give a sort of mundane example from my own field that I sort of wrestle with. So I love Charles Dickens. I quote his work a few times in this book. He's a quintessential Victorian novelist. And Charles Dickens was a jerk. Yeah. He mistreated his wife. He cheated on her, tried to put her in an insane asylum. All of these things weren't necessarily known until more recently, but he was really a jerk. And so let's, okay, so do I, what does this mean for me reading his novels? Reading his novel, uh, novels is a different kind of task than, or activity than going to church and sitting under his yeah. teaching, right? Yeah. And so that's a different category. And I, And any kind of artwork that I might, be part of or you know read or see i'm appreciating it as a piece of art now does it matter to me that one of my favorite film adaptations of a favorite novel tess of the d'urbervilles was done by roman polanski who's been accused of like child rape yeah that one gets a little harder because his film is about a girl and so i'm a little less comfortable with that even though i think it's a great film it, it bothers me and we could say that about so many <laughs> filmmakers yeah. unfortunately yeah but again that's still a different category when we're talking about people who are teaching us religious and moral and theological beliefs and their religious and moral and theological actions don't match up yeah then I think that's something that should really give us pause. And it's our job to separate, to say, 
what is the truth? And, and I, you know, without naming specific issues or things, I think many of the people who are listening to this conversation right now can probably point to some theological or doctrinal teaching within a camp of the church. I'm not talking about something in the creeds, but within a camp of the church. And we can say, okay, the people who've been promoting this view no longer have my trust. I don't believe their motivations. I don't believe their intentions. I don't believe everything they say. So now our job, I can see it as my job, is to say, okay, do I believe this teaching is true based on what the Bible says? Can I? And I'm not going to throw that away if I think that it is true, even though people who have been promoting it or teaching it for the wrong reasons or the wrong with the wrong application may may have lost rightly lost our trust we have to distinguish between those things but it gets awfully hard sometimes when the only people who are promoting them are ones that we no longer see as trustworthy so this is an ongoing this it is our responsibility as christians as human beings to ask this very question and just to struggle as best we can to find the answer Um, but sometimes the mess we do have to dismiss the messenger I really appreciate that answer to the question because I think having the conversation in community is really important. And I think maybe the way we, the willingness to wrestle with it, the willingness to acknowledge it is some of the most important part of the whole thing. And it keeps us in this holding things loosely that should be held loosely and understanding and and trying to figure out like, what is cultural? What did this person propose and preach about that maybe was a cultural idea or their own pet thing that if we really are intellectually honest, isn't truly backed by scripture. A mutual friend of ours recently shared a screenshot of a dress code that they had been given and school. And I posted a a picture of that on my Facebook. And I just said, Oh my goodness, now that I'm looking at it, I have some questions about all the rules for women. And actually it was like, the girls were called ladies, the boys were called men. I think it was funny, like the how they chose to say that's not that's not the point. But like, there was all the rules for the girls, like, it couldn't be form fitting. But also, it couldn't be too loose. And all like how wide the straps had to be if there were straps and all of the things. And it started a conversation, which doesn't always happen on social media, about dress codes. And what is the point of them? Is this actually a biblical thing? Who does it exclude? Like, what is the intent? What is the impact? And I thought, this is the conversation that would be, that is really good to have. People don't always want to. Caitlin Chess, who I just interviewed, often talks about how it's a lot easier to make a rule about things or a law about Mm -hmm. things than it is to sit down community with people in like Mm -hmm. kneecap to kneecap, have the conversation about the ramifications of certain things. So just curious of your thoughts. Did you see the dress code conversation Any thoughts on how culture, even in our, like, we think about these things like it's a theological, the Bible is clear thing when clearly we have the fashions change every year. Oh, no, I love talking about fashion and dress code. It's so great. And (laughs) 
I have so many thoughts. So we'll just. Can you look at a Christian Instagram? Yes, yes. I have to enforce a dress code. Oh my goodness! I got caught. I got stopped four times by RAs for violating the dress code when I was a professor because I didn't know what the dress code was and they didn't know I was a professor and I was just like, oh, okay, thank Karen, you. you broke the rules. <laughs> I didn't, was your skirt too short? Were you showing it was your- a, There was a slit in my skirt and oh, then one Karen. day I my dress had, because I because well, I did have to wear a dress at that time as a faculty member too, it had an in, inner lining, but so I wasn't wearing a slit, but someone saw I wasn't wearing a slip. Anyway, I didn't know what the dress code was. I just dressed the way I liked. But so for the dress code for students anyway, but I was young then. No, <laughs> this is the thing. It would be, it's absolutely fine for places to have dress codes and to explain why they have them. Yeah. But they should not be basing it on biblical reasons. So if it's just, right. if it's just like, well, in our culture, this kind of dress dress or you know is, is seen as provocative i mean i i still wouldn't agree yeah it's kind of it's creepy Tying but still it just a logical thing is- yeah exactly and so i mean in in a former institution i worked in for example um this was i had a problem at the time i would express this the men had to wear suits and ties and they had to have their hair cut a certain length fine but don't say this is biblical just say we want to establish like a business-like atmosphere we want a business dress code okay just call it what it is a lot of people don't know the story but my when i started teaching at a christian university 25 years ago my husband decided to get his teaching certificate so he enrolled as a student he had beautiful long hair and he had to get it cut to take classes and i'm still a little bitter about it <laughs> it's um, never the same after it has to be yeah, yeah yeah so how can you say it's cultural and that is yeah. fine but at least identify it for what it is and don't let creepy people measure women's clothing now yeah, and, i still and- remember kneeling on the ground to make sure my skirt was long enough oh and- school and it was a woman that was there for the dress check and everything but i just think it's fascinating it's called and you know one other aspect of this that this could be a whole show on itself but i am someone who does you know i do i do care about modesty and young women in a different way but one of the things that i notice mainly because i want them to be confident in other things about themselves and you know their you know their their sex appeal but one one of the things is that so that if you are poor or young or disenfranchised in some way, you often get your clothes either used or at cheap stores. The clothing is cheap and ill-fitting and doesn't look good. And that and, and these a lot of times I see young girls who just they're just buy they're just wearing what's available be, easily. And that because that's their only choice that they have. And to be condemning of that, yeah. to judge someone because they don't know any better or can't, don't have access to anything better, then we've got all our values mixed up. Yeah. Right? Or your body is a size that doesn't fit a dress code. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I was, I was just, I think there could be a whole dissertation on the, the origins of dress codes, like where they came from, what the point was. And I think it would be fascinating and probably a little bit horrifying, (laughs) possibly. (laughs) All right. So the first thing I noticed when I opened up your book was open it up and there's a dedication in the beginning of the book. I didn't know if I made the cut 
to Jane Doe too, whose courage, strength, integrity, and grace truly demonstrate the way of Jesus. Now, my understanding is the Jane Doe's that you know had to do with a Christian institution that you worked at. I would love for you to talk about your experience in being at a place that represent claimed to represent Jesus and in some ways did some wonderful things, but also caused harm and the tension for you in staying and deciding when to go and how to stay and like what to say and what not to say, whatever you feel comfortable sharing about that. Talk about things that could be a whole episode on their own, but no, it's a, it's a fair question. And um, no, that dedication is in the, co- it's, slight, it's slightly more poetic. <laughs> I just altered it slightly, but, um, but that's the gist of it in the final version. But, and, you know, and I do mention this in, in one of the chapters, I think it's the one on empire because, I, yeah, because I, I, I've been part of the evangelical empire now for a long, long time. And, um, and I'm just sort of thinking about that and, and, and asking myself what that means or meant and what my role is now. And I say somewhere in the book, in, in, a, in this context, basically, that institutions can do so much good. They have, that's why I, I think institutions are important because they, you know, they pool resources and yeah. people and so much more can be done by an institution um, than a, an individual. And yet those same resources and that same power and that same money can be used to to do wrong or the institution itself can become more important than the individual soul or the person who's thrown under the bus to use a metaphor that's meaningful to me in many ways. Yes. <laughs> and I, the thing I say in the book is I don't know how to do the kind of math that says, okay, this institution has done more good than harm. And I don't think for in God's economy, it is a mathematical equation. I think it's the equation that a lot of institutions aren't, aren't asking. And, but we do have to ask. And the way that I've navigated that just quickly is because I don't have the answer. I just, before the Lord every day in years past, in years more present and days more present, I have just said to the Lord, please make it clear to me when I stay, when I go, when it's time to give up, how to be faithful. And that answer is going to be different for each of us in different situations. The Lord is using us all, but we are still accountable before him, I think, to ask that question and ask what obedience and faithfulness look like where he has us and when he has us there. And then be faithful to move when he provides the clarity to that answer. And that's hard. So as I'm going to wrap this up with one final question, what is one of your biggest hopes for this book? As it, as you birth this book out into the world, what are you hoping for? Mm. You know, what I'm hoping for is I hope that people will pick it up and read it and think of a hundred different things that I didn't cover in the book. I really wanted to set forth a model because there are so many things I could have written about, about these images, metaphors, stories, the the underlying assumptions that we aren't examining. I just wanted to model for them. This is the way we need to think about how we think and how we're formed and go nuts, go crazy, find all the other ones that I didn't talk about. But the ultimate hope of course, is that, and I, allude to this in the chapter on Reformation, is that this moment that we're living through, this sort of crisis that's mentioned in the subtitle, that this will 
be not just a little blip on the radar, but maybe something that historians will look at as like something that happens only every 500 years or every thousand years in the church. Something is happening and we may not, I may not live to see the results, but I do want history to show that something good happened at this moment in the church. And I certainly want the Lord to see that. Um, And we're, we all have a part to play and, and we're not, none of us have the whole key, but the Lord sees and the historians might tell. They might. I said, I was, that was my last question, but I want to ask one more. If we want to expand our imagination a little bit more other than the Bible, what book do you love to help mm. people think about? Maybe as a, as a, even a tie to the evangelical imagination. Mm. One of the big influences on me, and I, I mentioned him in the book, is James K.A. Smith. And so this has been around for years. But if you haven't read You Are What You Love, which is kind of his um, you know general audience version of, of his academic series on this topic of, of how we our desires are cultivated, um, I think that's a good book to, that can continue thinking in this way. And then then just sort of on the other end, a great novel, The Brothers Karamazov or Jane Eyre, which really- The deals- Brothers K is pretty long, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'll just go with, I'll go with Jane Eyre because it really is the allegory of a modern Christian soul living in a nominally Christian culture and trying to be true to her faith. Yeah, I'll go with Jane Eyre. It's thick, but it's a faster read. Yes. Yeah. Don't you love Karen? I had such a great time chatting with her. We kept chatting for audio that I saved for the Patreon community. Join us over there if you're interested in hearing about her thoughts on figuring out when it's time to leave a place and what it's like to have strangers lobbing social media bombs in her direction questioning her integrity for staying at liberty when they had no idea what was happening behind the scenes. You can sign up for access to all the bonus audio at patreon.com slash untangled faith. I'll make sure that there is a link in the show notes for you. You can find the show notes in your podcast player or by going to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash episodes. If you're on social media, I would love to keep this conversation going over on Twitter I have no idea what we're calling Twitter these days. Or you can chat with me over on Instagram or through the Facebook page. I'm Untangled Faith on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm Faith Untangled on Twitter. The Untangled Faith podcast is hosted and edited by me, Amy Fritz. This podcast is made possible by the support of my Patreon community. A special thanks to producers Michelle Pionic, Phil and Susan Perdue, Pam Forsyth, and Shelley Taylor. Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next week.